Hey, and welcome to All Things Renovation with Brandy the Boss Lady and Paul the Wood Magician. We're a fun-loving couple who eat, breathe, and live all things renovation, and we'll be your hosts on this podcast. We created the podcast to help you take a confident role in your renovation dreams and get your project done right, on time, on budget, and with quality craftsmanship. Welcome to today's show, everyone. Uh, a few episodes ago, we discussed what an architect does, and today we're going to discuss what a landscape art architect is all about. With me is Heather Davidson, who is just that, a registered landscape architect. She has her own firm here in Vancouver, and with her small team, they focus on a wide variety of projects, such as gardens, pools, outdoor kitchens, decks, pergolas, playgrounds, and a whole lot more. She is passionate about finding highly creative and functional spaces for her clients, which totally resonates with me. And along with the creation of unique and calming spaces, um, she, as expected, is a bit of a plant nerd, or at least that's what her, her two kids call her. So welcome to the show, Heather. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited for the show. So what does a landscape architect do? And how do they differ from a landscape designer? They're two different things. Yeah. So um, like you said, you focused on architects in a previous episode. And I think most people know what an architect does. So a landscape architect is like an architect, but for your outdoor space. So think of everything from the outside of the building to the back of the curb, essentially, is where is our domain. And to become a landscape architect, you have to do either a master's degree or an undergraduate degree in landscape architecture. And then you have to challenge five registration exams to become a registered landscape architect. Um, it's a profession, so we're guided by our professional organization, in our case, the BC Society of Landscape Architects. And you can't call yourself a landscape architect unless you are registered with that society. Whereas I guess with a landscape designer, that would be a diploma program um, from a college or university. Uh, and essentially it's uh, a difference in knowledge um, more on the structural side, the way landscapes function, the drainage, how to build structures safely um, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's more technical, I guess you would say than a landscape designer. Yeah. So I my guess would be that maybe you would end up working with some geotechnical engineers from time to time as well. We certainly do. We work alongside lots of different engineers, um, geotechnical for sure. Um, also structural engineers come up quite frequently when it comes to things like taller retaining walls. We can design them generally up to four feet, but if they're above that, they need to go to a structural engineer. Same with decks that are really high off the ground. We'll get comment on those from a structural engineer and that sort of thing. Cool. All right, so um, what would you say the key elements or components um, that we bring into a, a, a landscape design? Um, I mean, obviously every, every space is gonna be a little bit different, but I would imagine that we would try to normally create a full and beautiful space. And normally those have a, a bunch of different components. So sort of what are the high level ones that we generally try and get in there? Yeah, there. I, you know, I generally start by asking my clients how they intend to use a space, and that starts to guide me as to what sort of components they would be looking for. And there certainly are some common, you know, some common elements in in all the landscapes. You generally, if we're talking about somebody's backyard, for example, um, there's going to be probably a place to 
lounge, which tends to be kind of the most important these days, maybe a place to dine um, where you could fit a dining table of some sort. Uh, there might be some calming elements like water elements or fire pit where, where people are drawn. Um, people are asking for shade a lot these days. Yeah. Um, so we get into different retractable shade awnings that fit into pergolas, some that come off the house. There's great big umbrellas out there that work really well. Um, we certainly get into planting. Um, planting helps mitigate sun shade, uh, you know, helps give a calming sensation, might add scent, beauty with the flowers. So we certainly inc incorporate planting trees, shrubs, perennials, grasses, all that sort of thing into the landscape um, and kind of working it into the various spaces. And then it's a mixture of, of hard surface um, with soft surfaces so even if you're not kicking a ball around you still might want to have some lawn in your backyard it's it's nice to have a sense of space even if you're not necessarily using it and we think about things like refuge um, and expanse or views of course uh, creating cozy nooks um, in the space where people feel like they can retreat to a place to read a book or just sit and even if you don't necessarily sit in that space the idea of a, of a bench in yeah. the corner of your yard is there's something so really inviting, isn't it? About it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. You may never sit there, but the idea that you might yeah. is, is something to, to be designed for. So those are sort of the main elements. And of course, there's there's lots of other layers on top of that and materials and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I would also imagine um, uh, like some people are really into having a pool, even if it's just a sort of a splash pool or even, you know, some of the the manufactured pools that you just kind of plunk in your yard and you can get the swim yeah. trainer style things. Or um, I know for myself, I was desperate for a hot tub. I love having a hot tub. And yeah, we, hot we did get one. So, um, you know, I, for me, a hot tub was more important than a pool. I, I'm not really a pool girl, but um, I would imagine that some spaces, some people would probably really love having hot tubs for instance well there is I mean something about being able to immerse yourself in water in your own backyard is really attractive and and it'll all depend on what your needs are are you coming back from a mountain bike ride you need to jump in a, a hot tub have a glass of wine in a hot tub or if you've got more space is it a pool is it a pool with a hot tub and like you said we've got these now modular um pools that that are made from shipping containers that can be plunked into a site above ground or below ground or a combination of above ground and below ground with a glass front. I mean, the the sky is certainly the limit and certainly having water, you know, there's something really human about about being attracted to water, whether it's something you immerse yourself in or it's a little gurgler with, you know, bubbling water coming out of it. The hummingbirds love to bathe in them. They, they are really attractive and, and a calming sound as well. Yeah, so no, I have a lot uh, of that sort of thing. I'm definitely on board with having a water feature. Uh, I don't currently have one, but it is definitely on, on my list of, this is what I'd love to have in my backyard. Um, so we, you sort of just really briefly touched on plantings, um, you know, for years and years, we sort of heard stay native, stay native, stay native with your plantings. But um, as we're finding our environment is changing and, you know, climate change and all that kind of stuff. And maybe what would normally have been done like 
30 or 40 years ago because that's native, it, they're no longer appropriate for our, our climate. And um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, maybe let's just dive into a little bit of what you would suggest for plantings. I mean, here, I mean, obviously everybody has different zones. I understand I'm not a big gardener or a landscape person, but I understand that depending on where you are, there's different plants that maybe would thrive better in some areas or others, or whether your shade or your sun, but um, typically how do you, how do you see the, the change um, throughout time, I guess, from what you maybe you would have specced whatever, even a decade ago to maybe what you're looking at now um, to deal with some like drought tolerance or, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah, I think there's a real consciousness these days um, where people are a lot more aware about water use uh, and and just our impact on the on the planet We're you know, we're hearing it in the news every day. And um, I, I do love to use native plants. There are lots of native plants that that do lend themselves to coming into the built environment and a lot that don't really thrive when they're taken out of their their natural habitat. So we like to use some of the really robust ones, like we'll use things like kinnikinick or deer fern or, or sword fern even um, that are you know, existing in our, in our native forest and, and bring those into the cultivated landscape. But some of those don't do well in drought situations because they, they thrive in a coastal rainforest. And especially in our cities and our heat island, we don't, it's not a coastal rainforest when you're in the heart of Vancouver. Um, and so we are looking more at some of the some of the things that thrive better in California is more of the the drought tolerant stuff like the um, the California lilac, for example, is really drought tolerant. Evergreen attracts pollinators. You know, we're we're always thinking yeah. about the little little beasts that live in our live in our gardens and what yeah. we can provide for them as well. And those are the ones that have like the little purple flowers, right? Yeah, the little purple spike of flower. Yeah, exactly. And a nice glossy green leaf that doesn't fall off in the winter. It's a shrub. Um, I, I'm, yeah, I'm using that one a lot. We're, we're using things like um, the New Zealand flax, which is also an evergreen. It's not overly tolerant way up on the, on the hills of, um, on the North Shore Mountains, because it is, it is slightly marginal in our, in our climate. Things like Russian sage, um, which is super hardy. It's down to zone two or something. And a lot of the plants that tend to have a gray green leaf, like lavender, for example, mm -hmm. a lot yeah. of the grasses um, tend to do well in drought situations. So the maiden grasses, the uh, fountain grass, the Carl Forrester, they, you know, they're really popular with us. We like to plant things. We have to spec things for our clients that are going to survive. Uh, we don't. We don't love having people <laughs> no, coming back. No, we're going to something that's going to die. Saying things didn't didn't do well. Yeah. Um, and we do, you know, on a site, we have to be really cognizant of the different microclimates that even exist within sun and shade. Is it under a big cedar tree? Uh, is, you know, how is the soil? Is it, is it acidic? Is it basic? Is it rich? We're doing a project in Beach Grove where if you dig down with your trowel, it's 100% sand. So that's a completely different plant palette than we would be looking at up on the North Shore. And right. we work generally sort of in that whole range. So it's so, important to know what works. Yeah. So a couple of things. So how do I, um, two things. Yeah. So let's talk about the zones. Um, maybe mm -hmm. just give us a really brief overview of the different zones and what, what, what does that mean for someone who's listening? Yeah. So it's the USDA zone, heart, uh, plant hardiness zones. You're going to test my knowledge here. Um, mm -hmm. The lower the number, the colder the zone. So the Arctic would be zero. 
And I don't know what Florida is, but it's really high. Uh, And Vancouver is a 7B. Parts of it might be verging on 8. You get out to Victoria, you might be even a 9. Something like Toronto, we've done a bit of work out there. That's a zone 5. I think Calgary is zone 2. I've worked there as well. What's what's the top end? We have a 0 to what? Uh, Really good question. I don't know offhand. Is it 20? I I think it's 20. (laughs) it should probably be something like 20. <laughs> it is a, it is an American system. Yeah. Um, so it's based on, on their climate. Right. Um, so yes, that would be a point to check out. People can, people can send us a message and, yeah. and we can find that out for them. And then um, uh, but Canada's sort of in the, in the middle to cold range of yeah, them. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, but also, and then we were talking about the soil type. So how, mm-hmm. how would a, a homeowner determine what that is? Or is there even a possibility? You can that? go to Home Depot and you can get a little kit or oh. any any of your, your home stores that have a gardening center and you can get a little kit and there's a little sample thing and it'll tell you what the pH is of the soil. Right. And there's some things that just won't grow in the wrong soil. Like you try and grow a rhododendron in soil that's not very acidic and it's not going to do very well at all. Something like a, a heather or a heath. Um which are some of great hardy plants out here, but again, they don't want to grow in soil that's that's basic. They need acidic soil. So some things are more tolerant of, of a range of soils, uh, but it is good to know if, if uh, you have super acidic soil, which generally occurs under an evergreen tree. So when those needles from that tree fall, which they do all the time, we yeah. think of an evergreen tree as not dropping leaves which are its needles dropping needles all the time it means they drop them all the time more seasonally they'll drop them when it's dry they're starting to drop them now um but they will produce an acidic soil under them and then if you have a basic soil um that's where your hydrangeas that are the macrophylla type will turn pink okay yeah and if they're in acidic soil they're blue so can can we have an additive that we can put into the soil to yeah we can amend the soil specific areas yeah there's different things you can do something like a, a hemlock mulch would make the soil acidic um or a uh you can use dolomitic lime will make the soil more basic so there's okay. different things you can use so i would imagine like like within any garden um you may even have some areas that are more acidic and some that are more basic and not necessarily uniform through throughout the whole site. Um, you may, yeah. If you've got different areas with uh, trees or that sort of thing, yeah. um, that will affect the soil. Like we said, the evergreen trees—that's the biggest one. You know, that's the one that's most pertinent to to the work that we do. Cool. All right. Yeah. So, I feel like we've gotten a, a pretty good list of plants off of you that would be, um, you know, things to think about if you're looking to, you know, at least google them and see what they look like to see if you actually like what they look <laughs> what they are for your garden now what about um like like flowering things and the ability to have them come into bloom at different points of the year so you kind of have something that's um sort of dynamic throughout the year as opposed to just barren in the winter and then like lush in the summer is that how do you, yeah how do we, we, how do we, we always that? like yeah, we have we have such an abundance of evergreens that do well um, in our climate out here. And we love to have a mix of kind of a structure in the garden that's an evergreen structure. So whether it's a broadleaf evergreen, which is something like a laurel hedge or this California lilac, 
um, those would be in the broadleaf evergreen category or um, a coniferous evergreen. So like a pine tree or a little uh, mugo pine, a yew shrub, that sort of thing. So we like to have a structure of things like that, but we also actually have a lot of perennials out here that don't die back in the winter. Like hoikara is a, or coral bells is the common name for it is a as a group of perennials that comes in every color of the rainbow it's got this sort of crinkly leaf and spikes of it's kind of an old-fashioned plant that is great it's just never really gone out of style it has these spikes of um, bell flowers so they don't die back in in the winter um, and there's certain grasses too that persist through the winter like blue oak grass which is another really great one so we like to have a structure in the garden that is going to be evergreen and then there is something exciting about that spring you know end of March April where there's a regrowth so to have everything look kind of the same all year would be super boring so yes. I also really encourage clients to accept a, a garden design that does have some change and you do have some bare soil in the winter but yeah. then you get this excitement in the spring where the new the new plants come up and you can see the new baby growth coming up like your hostas or some of your grasses or perennials like um, black eyed Susan or coneflower and these sorts of things where where they you know there there is that variation. Yeah, I know for myself after, of course, our Pacific winters with lots of rain and whatever, as soon as the spring comes, it's like, oh, and then, of course, we we. Um, we like to brag to the rest of the country. I know, <laughs> everything, right? Everything east of us. Oh, look, our crocuses are up already. And yeah. you know, oh, our, oh yeah. Our daffodils are up and it's, it's early March. Yeah. And it's so exciting to see that, like you say, that, that new growth and it's, you know, you're looking forward to the, the spring and the summer after having been through the winter. So exactly. I, yeah, I no, mean, I and you say with the crocuses, I mean, bulbs are a great way. Like I, in my own garden, for example, I have a progression of bulbs that give me color from usually January till June. And you've got your narcissus or your daffodils that start early and then your tulips which are, which are sort of in, you know, May. And then in June we have the allium, which is those big glow purple balls. I don't know those which, ones. Uh, it's actually an onion. It's like, a, it's like a super fancy onion bulb that comes back year to year, but they bloom on these long spikes in June. So you've got, and then your perennials start to come into their own after that. So that's right. a really great way to kind of just give it a flush of color in the early spring. Yeah, no, I love it. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to have to look up all of these plants and yeah. <laughs> listing, we'll, we'll have a list on the on the show notes and maybe a, like a Google link or whatever to great. See yeah. what they look like. Um, now, I, I also know that you're, you've done like a number of like playgrounds and, I, and as a parent, I mean, my kids are a little older now, but I've always been super curious about the process. And I mean, I can see that uh, some of the newer ones that I'm seeing around have gone from, from more like apparatus to something that's a little bit more natural or, or open in their style and design. Mm -hmm. kind of, yeah. Just be all creative instead of just like, here's a structure, climb the wall. How many times can you climb that wall? And then you're bored of it. So um, are you seeing like, I'm assuming that you're seeing that trend as well. That and is then, a huge trend in playground design. I mean, most of the, the, the old uh, splinter parks <laughs> that we, that we call them where, you know, where we've got the old uh, pressure treated wood structures are coming out and we're putting in natural materials playground. So that's sort of the term for it. And these playgrounds, and, and this is what we focused on in our, any of our playground work, 
they, we use wood as much as possible um, to build up these apparatuses. We did one that sort of had a tugboat theme. So there was a tugboat and a log boom thing behind it. And there's also sort of an element of danger and, and there's, there's high places to climb, but it's all got the um, five bar safety material below it so that it's all fall rated. Um, you need to have a, a CSA approved um, inspector come and make sure that everything's safe and they take their little plastic baby head and try and stick it through things and make sure it's all it's all safe and there's tons of rules to follow oh, but uh, what yeah. we've realized is within those rules there's a lot that we can do to make these playground spaces exciting uh they can be manipulated we have you know this fiber material that kids can move around they can be used in different ways. So it's not that this is the area for the two-year-olds and this is the area for the seven-year-olds. Everybody can kind of use everything and they can, they can use it to their natural ability. So if essentially, if you can climb up and I have this, I have this sort of theory with my kids too, these rules that I'm not going to put you on something that's really high, but if you can climb up onto something that's really high, chances are you're going to be able to get back down again. Yeah. And so that's sort of, that's sort of what we, what we like to do with these playgrounds is, is give the kids an opportunity to, to stretch their, their creative and physical bounds and, and start to, to learn more. Yeah, no, I love it. I, I love it. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously uh, like you were saying, like there's a ton of safety regulations in there and probably like a ridiculous amount of red tape for any municipality. Oh yeah. They, they take forever to design. It's, I mean, it's a labor of love. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean like even, um, we have a back a park in our back lane here and the neighborhood association wanted to put in one of those free libraries and it took them like a year of going back and forth. it was like a little tiny little structure tiny thing. They, had, they had to put it a post specifically in exactly this spot because it was this far away from the swings or this far away from the road and yep. all mm-hmm. they said mm-hmm. it was just crazy for this tiny little <laughs> <laughs> like free, like, you know, sharing library thing. I thought it was just, that's just nuts. That is, that's a lot. <laughs> but yeah. No, and I, I mean, I, I, I love that whole idea of natural space. Like, you know, if you say you go to the beach and you're climbing on logs, yeah, on the, or whatever, like you're just yeah. going to take that and, and the idea of that and transplant it into a, you know, a playscape area. And of course, yeah. you can, and of course, and we actually we've, we've dragged up, um, driftwood from the beach to to put into these parks where it's actually like you know time and sand and water has manipulated these these pieces of wood and turned them more into sculptural things yeah they're beautiful yeah yeah they're great they're great to climb on kids want to climb on those I mean yeah of course that's what kids do they climb all over everything all the time Mm -hmm. yeah um Oh, well, that's, you know, like, I'm, I'm glad that you're actually confirming what I'm seeing is just that the trend is changing. It is. Yeah. Um, I, I, I almost wonder like who, who started that whole thing and like how that actually came to be, because for a long, long time, we just really did have the structure. And like you say, like the, you know, the, the splinter playgrounds and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did and we didn't. There's a there's a great landscape architect by the name of Cornelia Hahn Oberlander who died recently at 99, practicing until she passed away. And she has always done playgrounds like that in her entire career. She's done tons of different stuff, not just playgrounds, but there has been a grassroots movement of that style of playground. And for whatever reason, it's come back into the mainstream recently, but you'll see some playgrounds that were built in the seventies and maybe sixties that were of that sort, you know, manipulated 
pieces of wood and things to walk on and balance on and rocks and that sort of thing that are, are some of them are still around, but yeah, they're for whatever reason, I think we're just moving away from man-made materials and less yeah. plastics and into using wood, which is a great renewable resource for these, yeah. for these playgrounds, let the kids play on natural materials. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. That's great. Now, <laughs> just the last um, thought on this sort of um, theme here in Vancouver, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. So totally cool. If you don't know, maybe name two playground spaces that sort of encompass that sort of natural open play area that, you know, are a little bit more recent that, you know, someone could go with their kids and check out. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one of the ones that we did. Okay, cool. Um, which is in New Westminster. It's called Keyside Park. Yep. And um, it's all natural materials, lots of things to swing and climb on, cargo nets and that sort of thing. Another one that my kids have visited quite a bit, which we love, is the park at Dunbar Community Center. Our kids play soccer there and there's a natural materials playground there. And one thing I love about it is there's a huge tree in the playground and they have taken advantage of and respected this tree. And one of the pieces of the playground is kind of wrapped around the tree, almost like it's a big tree fort with some high bridges that connect it to, to different parts and structures. And that one I really think is a, is a great park and super popular too. Very cool. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for those two tips. Yeah. Two tips. Um, so before we, um, close out the show and um, all that kind of stuff. How would someone get in touch with you if they wanted to do a bit of a, a refresh on their yard? Yeah, um, so we have a website, it's heatherdavidsondesign.com. Um, and there is a form you can fill out on the website, which sends an email to me directly um, or via email at hddesignvancouver.com. Nice, okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So as I always do with our guests, I'd like to ask a couple of fun questions at the end. Uh, so what would you like to change or renovate? I usually say in your own home, but in this case, in your own yard or your own home, what would you like to change with your own space? Ooh, so we have a, we have a tiny yard. We, we live on a 30 foot, 30 foot yard. Um, and we have a lot of bikes, mm. like there's four of us in our house and we have 10 bikes. I was going to say, you probably have 10 bikes. <laughs> have 10 bikes. Yeah. So I would have a shed, a nice shed at ground level where the, where the bikes could be, they could come in and out easily. They wouldn't have to go up and down stairs. And can I say a second thing? Yeah, of course. And I would have a sunny space to do a cutting garden. So I could have lots of flowers that I could cut and bring into my house. Excellent. Okay. Well, you know, I have a feeling that you would know what all those flowers would be. So, you know, maybe have a little consult with yourself. I think <laughs> I should have a consult with myself. Um, and then my second question is, are you handy? And if so, what's your favorite tool? And if not, what do you think would be the most fun to use? So you can choose a gardening tool if you like, or you could choose a conventional renovation style tool. <laughs> So I'm super handy in the garden. Um, I can plant and manipulate and I love digging in my garden and it seem to change my garden around every year. Um, my special skill is picture hanging. I love to hang pictures. I love to take pictures as well. And then I love to hang them around the house and get them straight and level. Oh, we have a little friend. Oh, 
hello, little friend. <laughs> Speaking of playgrounds, maybe it's time to head up to a playground. Um, so, oh, hello. Thanks, little friend. Anyway, um, well, again, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It and, was my pleasure. Um, oh, we have another friend. There we, we have go. another friend. Uh, and um, I totally look forward to, uh, you know, potentially working with you in the future. And I hope that for those of us who are listening, um, you feel free to reach out to Heather and, and see what she could potentially do for your own backyard. So, yes, uh, that would be fabulous. Yeah. Anyway, ciao for now. And we'll uh, see you on the next show. Thanks, Brandy. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today and learning about all things renovation. We hope after listening, you feel even more empowered to take a confident role in your renovation dreams. You can find all additional episodes and resources for all things renovation at our website, allthingsrenovation.com. And if you're ready to make your house feel more like home, you can contact us at woodbeart.com to get started on your dream project now.